Welcome to Dialogue on Teaching, Wabash Center's podcast series. I am Nancy Lynn Westfield, Director of the Wabash Center. Paul Myrie and Paul Utterback are our sound engineers. It is my pleasure to welcome to the conversation today, Dr. Ted A. Smith. Dr. Smith is Associate Dean of Faculty. He's also the Charles Howard Candler Professor of Divinity, as well as Director of the Theological Education Between the Times book series. He does all this at Candler School of Theology and the Graduate Division of Religion at Emory University. Welcome, Ted, to the conversation. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I'm, I'm really happy to get to talk with you. So let's start with what I call the book series. When I say the book series, it is Theological Education Between the Times. Um, it is, for me, a fascinating project about theological education. So just describe it to us, because I know it's had two iterations now, but describe the big issues that you're grappling with. Yeah, thanks. And thanks for the time you've taken with the series and with so many other books in it. Um, I really do see it primarily as its, it's first life is uh, is social, it's relational, it's interpersonal, and it's really only the, the books are what grow out of that. And a lot of other things grow out of it too, including all kinds of little partnerships on the side and uh, you know, teaching moments and uh, writing workshops. So a lot of things have come out of it. And the books are maybe the most visible part of this larger social process. The whole purpose of that project, the theological education between the times, is to try to renew uh, critical theological reflection about the meanings and purposes of theological education. And each of those words carries a lot of weight for me. I think um, it grows out of the frustration that I felt that so much of the, I mean, it's no secret, theological education is in a moment of crisis. We're in a time between the times, a time of shifting models. Um, but so much of the language that I heard to try to navigate this space was as if coming from a business school or something. And I, I don't, I'm not an, uh, I'm not an idealist. I understand the material realities of the world in which we work, but I did feel like we had something else, something more and deeper that we needed to say first. So renewing those conversations which are inherently plural, they're inherently contextual, they've got to come from a variety of different locations and identities, uh, but to get people thinking about what it's all for. Um, that's what the project's been about. So you tell us the structure, for those of us who don't know, I know, but our listeners don't sure, know. Sure, sure. So if, talk about the idea, like where did the idea come from to convene over a long period of time, right? I just told, told talk about the structure. <laughs> Um, this conversation with uh, like-minded or semi-like-minded people. Yeah. So uh, the project has actually had three phases. And the, the first one was mostly a listening phase. We uh, met at five different locations, uh, Saddleback Community Church, Howard Divinity School, uh, Esperanza College in Philadelphia, uh, Mundelein and and Candler. So really different contexts. And in each of those places, different groups of people convened. And we just did short writing for that. And then out of that group, there emerged 12 people 
who uh, I thought would have an affinity for the work and for one another. And so the second phase was gathering them, just as you say, for a, a total of seven meetings over three years. And, you know, we wrote together and we read each other's stuff and we prayed together and ate together. And it was just, uh, it was a really profound set of relationships. And uh, and out of that has come one of the things is is this book series, 12 books uh, eventually uh, with Erdman's Press. They're all in the Theological Education Between the Time series and um, books by Willie Jennings and Chloe Sun and Amos Young came out together as a kind of cluster that launched the series. And um, now we've had 10 more books in it. Colleen Mary Mallon's book is going to be coming out uh, in the spring. And that'll be number 11. Nice. So before, before you galvanize this as 12 folks who would stay together and become kind of the writing crew, when you were going to the different writing locations, because you and I, again, have talked about this before, one of your insights that you described to me before was that context mattered to the writing when you all were yeah. doing short writing. Talk about that insight, because people oftentimes overlook that context does matter when you're writing. Yeah, um, yeah, that it, it it was amazingly uh, true Con that and context here, meaning even just the physical place. Uh, I think what we found is that different people felt authorized in different ways and different spaces. Mm -hmm. um, to be honest, I. I felt often off my balance in many of these places. I was a guest, right? Um, and kind of obviously a guest, depending on the hospitality of others. So it shifts, it scrambles the power relations. So it changes the conversation in the room by authorizing different people, by making different people comfortable. And then that that filters into the writing. Um, so, it, you know, there was some little amateur sociology as we looked at what was happening in those places. But I think the deepest thing was the way the place shaped the conversation, um, just as you just as you intimate. I love the phrase authorized in certain spaces, because it's true. Our identity is connected to spaces or disconnected to spaces. Yeah. And our voices will either amplify or shrink based on our authorization in those spaces. So if you're in a foreign place, it's hard to be authorized to say what you want to say, even if it's a writing project. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and maybe you can be authorized in the way that the, you know, air quotes, foreigner is authorized. Mm -hmm. You can say things when you're explaining your world to people who don't know that world and who, and you're not currently in it. Um, you can say it in a different way. You can say that uh, you can have different emphases. So I think the main thing was just scr the, the scrambling uh, that, that happened and kind of enabled some new, uh, new thought. So this group of 12, we did um, start off meeting in different places uh, for, with that same ethos in mind, when we really settled into the writing and when the group really bound to each other, then we settled into the same place each time. Uh -huh. And there, I think that had become our space uh -huh. as a group more than anybody else's. And once it became ours, then just being there helped us be the group that we needed to be. But it's that same kind of visceral deeper than consciousness way that place shapes uh, what you can think and say and write. So scholars notoriously write solo, mm. um, even in isolation, which is more than just one, they write in isolation as one. 
Yeah. You all created for yourself and developed a writing community and developed a give and take and a pull as you wrote. What was that like? That was uh, like one of the greatest joys of my entire life. Mm. Um, it was just delightful. Um, partly it was the individuals involved, but I, I think, uh, but, so what was it like? It was, uh, we would, we had times when we would just write in the moment and then we would read aloud whatever we had written if, if people wanted to, and then there would be no commentary before or after. So you couldn't introduce it saying, well, you know, I actually am smarter than this and this is really bad and dumb and blah, you know, and then you read the the thing. So no, no preambles and then no apologies or anything at the end. And also no, just not even, not even affirming one another, but just receiving one another and just letting, just letting that be in the room. And um, it's kind of counterintuitive that not having affirmations would um, actually build the bonds, but it did because it meant we're really not judging. We're not even judging positively. We're just receiving one another, you know? And so there was a lot of time of writing like that. Um, and then uh, there was, and then we divided into little groups of three, which read each other's chapters more intensely. So you had a lot of, you know, really working through each other's stuff. And then uh, my partner in the editorial process, Uli Guthrie, uh, she and I met individually with each author and then worked closely with each text. So there were just uh, all kinds of layers, I would say, to the conversation around the writing. But the real key to forming the writing group was all the other stuff besides writing that we did. It was just being together. Uh, it was eating together, drinking together, worshiping together. Worship was a, hu a huge part of those gatherings, a significant amount of time. And uh and just being with each other over the course of a couple of years and all that life brings in a couple of years, uh, which is often a lot. So I want to get to your personal book, personal author book, but I have a question before that. Yeah. Ha how has that experience affected your teaching and administrative roles and responsibility? That is, <laughs> that is such a great question. Um, one of the things it started me doing is to... Um, have more free writing time in class, mm -hmm. and then to use exactly that exercise where students just, if they want to, they just read what they say, and then there's, but we don't, we don't comment on it, and we don't judge it. The room just expands to hold whatever needed to be written. Um, yeah, and so, so as just as a teaching device, that's that's been really good. And it builds the intensity, I would say, of the conversation. Mm -hmm. It too scrambles authorization patterns. Um, different people, uh, are, you know, we have other modes of conversation, other modes in which the class works, but that's a distinctive one. And sometimes students who aren't as strong in some, they, they really excel in that. And that that's a great thing. People can say things that they couldn't otherwise say. So, and I think in my administrative work, I mean, one of the most direct uh, ways that it has shaped my administrative work is that Elizabeth Conde Fraser, who is the executive director of IET, um, and just was in many, it was is in many ways the conscience of this project um, and calling us to account, calling me to account. But um, she always says that relational is transformational and that it all grows out of relationships. She has taught me that. I bring that to everything I do, but it also just with her in particular, um, 
Our own relationship has kind of borne the fruit of a number of initiatives at Candler and a deep partnership between Candler and IET that culminated in um, you know, getting uh, $6 million in grants to do some projects together. Mm-hmm. Um, but just building those just durable partnerships, uh, you know, partnerships marked by justice, marked by mutuality, marked by love um, and truth telling. Uh, so she, so that's a, I mean, that's a very concrete thing that has come out of this. Um, and there, there would be others too. So the values that you're talking about, the experience and even encounter that you're talking about sound life changing, but it also sounds rare. Hmm. That's all I have to say. About it. <laughs> I mean, so I don't, I don't want to ask you a how question because you just, you know, you said it. I guess I, I, I'm just, I'm trying to honor what you just described as something that people um, yearn for. And yes. as scholars, we have such a hard time creating it, committing to it, and honoring it when it happens. Yes, I, I, we do, we do yearn for it. I think that's right. That That is not rare. The yearning is not rare. And the ability on some level is not rare. Um, I, I mean, these are exceptional individuals, Lord knows. Um, but I, I've, I've done it with other groups. It can happen. And it's not me. Uh, that's for sure. Um, it is, I do think we, like many of our structure, our institutional structures make this kind of connection very, very difficult. Um, and that is, that is a deeply sad thing to me. And so one of the things we have to think about is how we, we shift a faculty, how we shift a guild, how we shift communities of teaching, learning, writing, so that they can take on these life-giving forms. Um, but they, they are there to be had. Um, and there is also no doubt that, uh, an external source of funding in this case from the Lilly Endowment, that's what enabled us to build a structure outside the traditional structures. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. um, it it wasn't a guild. It wasn't there wasn't an, another institutional home. It kind of could ha- create its own institutional structure. And I think we need some experiments like that. Um, but eventually, we're gonna we it has to translate over into the you know the really powerful institutions that. Or do so much to structure our lives. But the generativity that comes out of it to me makes it worth fighting for or makes it worth pivoting away from an institution that would say no to it, to finding ways to make these kinds of experiences happen. I just think the the generativity yeah. that is so needed in theological education to do the rethinking. I mean, that's what you're talking about. Well, right? Wabash we, creates those kind of spaces. Yeah, uh, we do. I mean, they they exist. Uh, it It happens. It, it happens regularly. Those spaces aren't rare, but you also have to get to them, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. You just can't, you just can't like sit up one day and say yes. Tell us about your book. You so part of part of your um role, responsibility, obligation, affinity for this process was that you were not just the grant manager, um, but you were also an author in the process. Um, which is marvelous. Tell us your uh, title, your book just came out. Tell us about it. Yeah, thanks. Uh, So my book is called uh, The End of Theological Education. Um, And there's a, you know, there's a 
not very sophisticated pun embedded in the title. Uh, It's end in that Pauline sense where it's the, it's the telos, it's the purpose, it's the eschatological horizon of theological education, um, the end in that sense. But I, I, I do think we are also uh, in the time of an ending of one model of theological education. It is proving unsustainable without massive inputs from some other source, um, whether that's selling a campus or drawing down an endowment or something. Um, so we, it, it's an end in both of those senses. Um, and what I try to do in the book is to tell, uh, tell a history of how the model that I think is breaking up now, that's unraveling now, tell a history of how it came to be. Um, part of that is just telling a history that it came to be. I think, you know, institutions often present themselves as almost ontological, as if it has always been so. And it it was not, no, no, this thing was made by humans Mm -hmm. over time, really just about 200 years ago, and really only in North America. So it's kind of a, it's not, it's not a universal model. Um, It's not the only way that Christians have gotten together for teaching and learning over the centuries, far from it. Um, so to kind of parochialize the model by uh, historicize the model, but then also in telling the history um, uh, of its coming together and then to try to analyze exactly why it's coming unraveled um, at this time. And I tell the story uh, from my own social location, which is not just, uh, it, it's not less than uh white and cis male and ordained Presbyterian, all those things, straight identifying, all those things, uh, but also a Midwesterner and very much a child of a world of voluntary associations. Um, and those institutions st- structured you know, what it meant to be a good person in my family. And it's really not just, it was to lead a voluntary association. That's that's what you, that's what good work was. Um, and so really I, I, I narrate the story of theological education coming unraveled within a larger story about uh, a network of voluntary associations coming unraveled. And um, I don't tell that story, uh, there's no joy in it for me, There's, but I, it's also not merely lament. You know, it's a profoundly ambivalent story for me, uh, and so I try to retain some of that ambivalence. Name what some of the good things we're we're losing. Name some of the ways in which that network of voluntary associations was aligned with the white settlement project, was aligned um, with colonialism, uh, was you know was a key form of the reproduction of whiteness as norm. So all these things. Um, you know, that, that I don't lament their passing, right? But also the ways in which it enabled meaningful lives and to try to, to talk about that as well. Um, so it's really, an, it's an analysis of how that group, that constellation came into being and why it's breaking up now. And then some, and then, then there's a kind of eschatological inbreaking in the middle, there's a sermon, and then on the other side of it, some practical reasoning uh, in the form of renunciations, and then thinking about affordances, um, ways that we might find faithful ways forward. So I love the fact that you use and frame um, your conversation with your social location, that you don't fall back on contrived objectivity, that your own lens is spoken, right? Is acknowledged yeah. and is said. To me, that's a much more powerful and risky way to write 
than to claim um, the narrator who is all powerful and universal and knows all things and is dictating all things. Well, yeah. Well, and I mean, after reading the other books in the series, there's no other way it could have been, um, but, and it wouldn't have been honest from the start, but I, I will say that was, you know, I don't know if this, I don't know the extent to which this worked, but this was the design idea that I had that um, sure. I'll be the grant manager and, you know, go get the book contract and some of that stuff, much of which is really serve. I mean, it's service work, right. To create that kind of space as, as you know, very well. Um, but I think if I had been only the editor, then I would have been kind of the invisible offstage presence. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. um, and that would have been making the particularities of my identity, uh, not just one among many in the same way. Um, if we, if I had written the uh, my book and it had come out first, you know, and then everything as a response to that, that too would have been wrong to my mind, you know. So I, what I was trying to do was to be uh, in the mix, right? Here is one more voice, no more uh, universal than any of the others, but it is it is a it is a perspective, it is relevant, you know, and on on in these and to kind of parochialize my own voice, my own persona, my own perspective. And, but I think in that parochializing, there's also a deeper grounding, there's a deeper root, there's like, there's more insight that comes from it. It's not only a limiting of the claims, but, um, but a growing too. So that, that was the idea. So my book was number nine in the series. And that was just kind of, because that's when it worked out. It wasn't even, you know, you know how a series goes, the first three, they come out just like, like you think. And then after that, it's just like, hey, who's got one done? <laughs> Each a miracle in and of itself. Right? Let's just get it out there. <laughs> Somebody so, have anything? So there was no give us something. At this point, there's no grand plan. We're just <laughs> we're just trying to get them out. So mine that's and mine ended up ninth, but that was the idea. So what's what now that you've had this experience? Still, still a little bit in the experience, but you've had you know it's been a couple of years, several years now. What's your hope for theological education? Hmm, that's a great question. Um, Well, part of it you've already pointed me to uh, and and kind of reawakened me to. Part of it is that much more of our theological study, teaching, learning, writing can be marked by the kind of joy that characterized this book um, and the mutual connection and love um, that it can, that that's the way it can be. Um, and justice, uh, that the relationships, you know, to the extent possible in this age, they're at least moving towards justice. So, uh, and that more people can have that kind of experience. I, I think in many ways that experience is the deepest curriculum of the, of theological learning, right? Um, I think to get there, we're going to have to surrender. We're going to have to give up our hold on some of the goods that um, the professional model of theological education has given us. And some of those are, you know, psychic gratifications or senses of, frankly, of being better than others, or, you know, something like we're going to have to give some of those up. Um, and and I, I, th I think that'll be hard. And some of those things, they're not just bad. They're, there are some real goods, like it's going to be hard the, one of the things the professional model has been good at is generating enough surplus that you can fund a sabbatical for at least some lucky people once in a while. Um, it's going to be hard to do that with other models. So we're going to have to find other ways to write besides, you know, having a huge 
uh, expanse of time. I think, um, so another part of my hope for theological education is that it's it's the joy for sure. It's seeing it, It's and with that, it becomes an end in itself. It be, it's not an instrumental good towards something else, but it is, especially the closer it gets to worship, and I think they're slightly distinct, but they can overlap a lot. Well, then it's not for something else. It's just the meaning of life. Like, this is what we're here to do, to do this kind of work and to do it together. So I hope for more and more of that non-instrumental quality. And once you start thinking about theological education like that, then you see that it has to be for everybody. It cannot be just for you know a select professional class of clergy. I mean, if if what it is is this kind of teaching, learning, writing with God and about God and with one another, if this is the stuff of human life, well, then everybody needs it, right? So then it's about finding ways to give more and more people this experience. Um, and I do think we can see little signs on the horizon of institutional forms that can actually do that work. I don't think it's only pie in the sky, but those would be, you know, joy, non-instrumental and, uh, and for everyone. Um, and if it's for everyone, it's going to have to be really, really cheap, or we're going to have to find ways to fund it um, that really make it genuinely accessible to, to everyone. Ed Smith, I thank you for your uh, prophetic word, right? When people are looking for uh, what's the next, what should I be aiming at? What do I what do what do I move toward? Um, I think your book series and especially your book helps us um, with these giant critical questions at this moment. So thank you. Thank you. And thanks for the conversation. For our listeners, the Wabash Center website is the place. Look on our website for details concerning our cohort groups, our resources on teaching and the teaching life, like our blogs, our journal on teaching and our syllabus collection, as well as our regranting program. A special thanks to podcast producer Rachel Mills and the music which frames our podcast is the original composition of Paul Myrie. Wabash Center for more than 28 years is exclusively funded by Lilly Endowment Incorporated. And we are out. How was that, Paul? <laughs>